Hello and welcome to Seeking Health with Josiah Meyer. Seek health, find God, and ministries will find you. And I was listening to the Joe Rogan podcast yesterday, and he had a guest named Keith Campbell. And they were and Keith is a psychologist uh, that has uh, studied narcissism for a long time. And so they talked a lot about narcissism. People in our society are talking about narcissism a lot these days because uh, Donald Trump is probably a narcissist. And it's affecting the world uh, in a very large way. Even though I'm a Canadian, it still affects me. And so, and um, when I discovered this term narcissism, to me it unlocked a whole range of, a whole new field and it unlocked a different way of seeing myself and there's a whole bunch of related terms around it so um, this term has been really helpful for me in my journey and so it'll fit really nicely at the beginning of my new season of talking about health um, at the center of our Christian walk so what is a narcissist? Um, this is a hard question. And before we can answer that, um, we need to ask who's asking the question. And there's going to be at least three different types of people that are asking this question. Um, with words, you have the word and the meaning and the person understanding it. There, There's always... There's always an audience. There's always somebody there understanding it. We have to understand that. Um, so who who is asking the question? Or, and what is the context of this word? There's at least three different contexts. Uh, one I'll just mention briefly is Christianity. Um, Christianity doesn't talk about narcissism uh, for the most part. It's not a word that comes up in the Bible. It's a recent term from psychology. Um so Christians don't really talk about it. Uh, they're a little bit shocked and confused when the word narcissism comes up. They don't have categories for it. But the best way that I could put the word narcissism into a Christian category is to talk about either the wicked, so scriptures, you know, the book of Psalms and Proverbs talks about the wicked, wicked person, the ungodly, um, or the fool. Now those aren't those won't relate completely to what a narcissist is because that is a moral description. Um, but most of the fools in the Bible are also narcissistic, and most of the wicked people in the Bible are also narcissistic. So if you approach life completely from a Christian and a biblical perspective, um, you're going to see how this term of wickedness and of folly and ungodliness is going to be similar. There's going to be certain overlap with narcissism. Now, the other group of people, obviously, are the psychological community, people that study emotional health and mental health, and they've come up with this term narcissism. Narcissus is, um, there's this ancient Greek uh, when academics study um, in the you know not in the Christian community but in the secular community, 
they'll see their thoughts as beginning with the ancient Greeks, and they'll often go back to the ancient Greeks, which is why in this podcast I have gone back to the ancient Greeks, because it's in various podcasts I talk about um, Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and other people that I forget their names at the moment, um, Parmenides and, and people like that. In the, in the Western tradition, we see our thoughts as beginning with with um, with the ancient philosophers in Athens at around 500 BC, at about the time of the Babylonian captivity of the Israelites. And one of the myths from that time is Narcissus. Uh, and Narcissus was um, a beautiful young man, strong hunter. Uh, he had many women chasing him. and uh, But he wasn't interested in any of the young women. Um, he just was running through the forest. He, he was doing his own thing until one day he found somebody as beautiful as he was. He looked in a, in a pond as he was hunting and he saw his own reflection and he fell so in love with himself that he just stared and stared and stared at his own reflection until uh, eventually either he fell into the pool or he became a flower and there's a narcissus flower that grows at the edge of lakes and it the the flower bends over the water and and kind of looks at itself in the in the reflection of the of the water and that's the narcissus flower that's the ancient story of of narcissus a side note to that story is the story of echo and echo is a young nymph a beautiful young woman who fell in love with narcissus uh, but he wasn't interested in her because he was so interested in his own reflection even though she was a very beautiful woman and um, so she kept calling out to him, calling out to him, calling out to him, repeating everything he would say uh, until eventually he died. And then she went wandering off lost and heartbroken until she faded into the background of a cave. And now any time that you call into a cave, you'll hear Echo's voice calling back to you. Um, so this is how the ancient mythology works. It's kind of cute, kind of related to nature, but also there's some deep, profound truths. And I want to talk about narcissists, and I want to talk about echo, perhaps in this podcast or later ones, because I think I have realized lately that echo is really significant in how that story plays out. All right, so what is narcissism? I'll read a few definitions online and then um, kind of boil it down for you. There's, it's kind of confusing um, and I'll explain why in a second. Basically, it comes down to who is asking the question. Um, and again, we talk about Christians, we're talking about psychologists now. There's two groups, there's three groups, and that's what causes the confusion. So, what is a narcissist? Narcissistic personality disorder, this is the Mayo Clinic here, is one of several types of personality disorders. It is a deep, it is a mental condition in which people have an inflated sense of their own importance a deep need for excessive attention and admiration, troubled relationships, and a lack of empathy for others. But behind the mask of extreme confidence lies a fragile self-esteem that's vulnerable to the slightest criticism. A narcissistic personality disorder causes problems in many areas of life, such as relationships, work, school, or financial affairs. People with narcissistic personality disorder may be generally unhappy and disappointed when they're not given the special favors or admiration that they believe they deserve. They may find their relationships unfulfilling and others may not enjoy being around them. 
Treatment for narcissistic personality disorder centers around talk therapy or psychotherapy. Um, actually, this is this is helpful. Symptoms, signs or symptoms of narcissistic narcissistic personality disorder, and the severity of symptoms vary. People who have the disorder can have an exaggerated sense of self-importance, have a sense of entitlement, and require constant excessive admiration. Expect to be recognized as superior, as superior, even without achievements that warrant it. Exaggerate, it. exaggerate achievements and talents. Be preoccupied with fantasies about success, power, brilliance, beauty, or the, having the perfect mate. Believe they are superior and can only associate with equally special people. Monopolize conversations and belittle or look down on people they perceive as inferior. Expect special favors and unquestioning compliance with their expectations. Take advantage of others to get what they want. Have an inability or unwillingness to recognize the needs and feelings of others. Be envious of others and believe others envy them. Believe in an arrogant or haught, behave in an arrogant or haughty manner, coming across as conceited, boastful, and pretentious. Insist on having the best of everything, for example, the best car or the best office. At the same time, people with narcissistic personality disorder have trouble handling anything they perceive as criticism, and they can become impatient or angry when they don't receive special treatment, have significant interpersonal problems, and easily feel slighted, react with rage or contempt, and try to belittle the other person to make themselves appear superior have difficulty regulating emotions and behavior, experience major problems dealing with stress and adapting to change, feel depressed and moody because they fall short of perfection, have secret feelings of insecurity, shame, vulnerability, and humiliation. So actually, that was really good. I was going to go other places on the internet, but uh, the Mayo Clinic, one of the first uh, results, if you Google it, um, really helpfully summarizes uh, narcissism, and it doesn't get too far into the weeds as far as technicalities of the condition. So if I were to sum it up for you so far, what we've said, um, a narcissist is just very self-focused. If you think of that story of Narcissus, there's other women who are chasing him. He has the opportunity to focus on others. He has the opportunity to, with Echo, this beautiful nymph, this beautiful young woman, he has the opportunity, which many other men would probably envy, of looking into the soul of a beautiful young girl and saying, I'm going to care about you. I'm going to start a relationship with you. Let's, you know, make love. <laughs> Let's start a family. Let's get married. Hopefully not in that order. But, I mean, this is ancient Greece, so it probably would have been in that order. But... He doesn't do that. All he cares about is his own self. He cares about looking in his own reflection. Now, something that the Mayo Clinic very helpfully pointed out, and not all definitions point this out, is that there's a very deep insecurity in the narcissist that he doesn't feel, he or she does not feel whole as a person. And they keep... And so there's this constant need, like they believe that they're the most important person. They believe they're the smartest person in the room. They believe that they're better than others. They won't associate 
with people they consider inferior or if they do they kind of feel like they're doing other people a favor for associating with them they they believe they're special but at the same time in the center of themselves they have this deep insecurity which is why they can't handle criticism and why they work so hard to prop up their image so how does it happen how do people end up narcissistic <clears throat> we don't really know uh psychologists don't really know um people would not be diagnosed as narcissistic before like children aren't diagnosed with that even young adults um would not typically be diagnosed until after about 25 um approximately it's not a precise science uh but it is it is a normal stage of development to be more self-centered and even uh, even teenagers even young adults they're their brains literally have not finished forming yet. And so it is normal to be a little bit more self-centered at that age. Um, but where narcissistic personality disorder happens is people don't develop to the next stage of empathy and caring for others and really seeing other people as becoming team players and seeing other people as a really important part of the world. Now, in saying not becoming team players, a narcissist can seem to be functioning as part of the team, but it all relates back to themselves. It's all about them at the end of the day. So I was just in the podcast um, that I re- referenced earlier um, with Joe Rogan. He had said that it was about 30% genetics, 10% raising and then something like 50% environment, what happens to you in life. And there's a lot of unknowns uh, that go on. We don't exactly know what causes it. My belief, based on my research, and, and I need to preface this by saying I am not an expert in any of these things, but I'm a very passionate researcher I'm very interested in these subjects and I think I've made a lot of progress over the last year researching this on my own and my belief is that um, it comes down to environment a lot of it comes down to environmental factors in one's childhood and development years that really short circuit short circuit this process of switching from an, a self-focus, an inward focus, to caring for others. And when this switch does not happen, we end up with somebody like a Donald Trump, who people say over and over, he's acting childish. He's acting like he's a child. And in a sense, he is. He's acting as, in ways that would be completely normal and reasonable for a child to act, because he seems to be attention seeking, he seems to make it all about himself. He's talking about, you know, he's very fragile. He gets insulted very easily. When he gets insulted, he lashes out. He, um, you know, he struts about. He he boasts. He does all the things that are cute when somebody is two or three. Uh, but when somebody is seventy or whatever his age is, it, they become very destructive and disturbing because they're um it's hard to run a society it's hard to function it's hard to cooperate when one person is behaving in that way 
So in her book, Too Much and Never Enough, Mary Trump uh, kind of lays out, and Mary Trump is um, the, the niece of Donald Trump, and she is a uh, clinical psychologist, and she lays out kind of the early years of Donald Trump and how um, in her in his family, Trump's father was a narcissist, a very extreme narcissist, and his mother got sick, got really sick, right at the time when Trump was around three or four, and there was really nobody to care for the young child. Um, children have a really important stage where there needs to be a connection um, with a significant adult in their life. And there's something that goes on called mirroring, where as the child gets angry, an adult will, you know, connect on an emotional level and their face will mirror what the child is doing. If they're happy, then, you know, the parent's eyebrows will go up and they'll smile back. If the child is angry, then the parent's eyebrows will scrunch down and they'll engage with that and be like, now, Johnny, that's not okay. And and if they're loving, then, the, the, you know, the parent will re- reflect that back. And that is actually a really critical stage for the child understanding that his self and his emotions actually, like he is an extension of the world and other selves are an extension of him. And he learns more about his own emotions, he or she learn about their own emotions, but also they, this is the foundation of empathy. And uh, like we have a two-year-old and we've noticed just recently he started saying sorry voluntarily on his own. If he realizes that somebody is hurt or somebody is is in pain, he will come over to them and rub their back and say, oh, oh. And it's really cute. And because I'm researching this stuff, I'm thinking, wow, that worked. You know, whatever magic happens at that age, it worked with him. Um, these are things that are very important. They happen naturally and normally in healthy families. Um but sometimes due to trauma, due to um, something not being right in the environment at that time, or because the parents themselves are so narcissistic and so into themselves that they don't have time to, they might be physically there, but they're not, um, they're not empathizing with their own children in the correct way. And so it creates confusion and these things don't happen as young children. And then it leads to a child that just is not able to empathize and not able to connect with others in in the way that normal children do. Normal children are able to empathize and connect with others. But these children go through life and they don't really connect with other people and they don't really care for other people in the same way. And it seems as though sometime around the teenage years or young adult years, they become fixed in a certain way of of living their life and a certain way of overcoming their obstacles and a certain way of um they they kind of decide how they're going to be in the world and it does seem like there's a decision element not that they necessarily write themselves a contract but not everybody who has the same upbringing ends up being a narcissist some people decide um and this is something I'm going to talk more about in other podcasts. Some people go through the same childhood 
and actually end up becoming extremely caring, extremely other-centered to an extreme degree. And these people become codependent or they become people-pleasers. They become so um, focused on making other people happy so that they can get that love, affirmation, and praise that they almost lose themselves. They don't know who they are as a person because they're so desperate to find that affirmation by just morphing themselves into whoever, whatever the other person needs. It's a codependent. A codependent can have the same upbringing as a narcissist. In fact, they often do. But a narcissist goes through that childhood. They weren't affirmed in their central identity as a person. They have this, this need to have love. They have this inability to really care for another person and, and really connect. And so their solution to that is, I'm just going to treat people like objects and I'm going to do what I can to get ahead in this world. And so again, to just go back to the definition, narcissistic personality disorder is a mental condition in which people have an inflated sense of their own importance, a deep need for excessive attention and admiration, troubled relationships, and a lack of empathy for the others. And what I've said, my belief is that this comes from not not being affirmed at the center of who they are as a child, not going through some of those normal stages of development such as mirroring such as connection with other people at those critical stages um, and what this creates is an insecure adult and some people deal with that insecurity in in trying to be super nice and and in that way trying to get people to to fulfill their need of being loved and some people um, deal with that insecurity uh, by really being not nice and by saying, well, if I can't be loved, then I'd rather be feared. Or um, if I have the biggest, the fastest car and the most beautiful wife and, and I'm the most successful person in the world, then people will have to love me. And so that's the strategy of narcissism. Now, an added wrinkle here is that not all narcissists look like Donald Trump. In fact, some of the narcissists that cause the most trouble are the ones that are almost the look like the opposite of Donald Trump. So Donald Trump is what would be called a grandiose narcissist. This is somebody that this is usually the first person somebody would think of when they think of narcissism. They're they're larger than life. They're out there. They have like a really um, grandiose self image. They think that they're amazing, and uh, they. They portray that to the world, but when you get close to them, you realize actually this is a very insecure person. They're very hard to have a relationship with because they take everything personally. Um, and in their inner circle, people, you know, come and go, come and go. There's a revolving door because they just burn through people. They don't care for people the way that other people do. They don't create lasting relationships. There's a lot of problems. But from a distance, you think, wow, what a person, what an amazing you know, that's a grandiose narcissist. There's also something called a covert narcissist, or um, sometimes it's called a vulnerable narcissist. And this is somebody who has the same emotional insecurities. Um, they have the same emotional problems where... All right, well, 
my little buddy woke up, so I'm going to see if I can put him to sleep and talk at the same time. So if uh, you hear some heavy breathing here in the side, and if my voice is really calm, that's because I'm trying to put my two-year-old to sleep. I'm not sure if this will put him to sleep or keep him awake. We'll see. So we were talking about covert narcissism or vulnerable narcissist. Um, these are people with the same emotional problems as a narcissist. That aching insecurity um, and that inability to empathize and connect with others. But they don't have the same strength. They don't have the same ability to dominate. If they had that ability, they would dominate. But they don't have that. They have other skills. And so a vulnerable or a hidden narcissist will use things like passive aggressiveness. They will use manipulation. They will use the um, they will use guilt tactics, and they will use other methods to control people. And I'm not going to talk about covert narcissists a whole lot in this podcast, just because it's already getting kind of confusing with different things I'm bringing up. It'll be really helpful to talk more about the grandiose narcissist and kind of the stereotypical straightforward narcissist and then perhaps in the next podcast or in a future podcast we can talk more about the covert narcissist in many ways um well it's it's devastating to build your life around a narcissist a narcissist force people to build their lives around them but when you got get caught in the trap of it it can be really devastating and when you find your way out the other side of it um understanding what a narcissist is can be really instrumental in you putting your life back together and so far what I have um, what I have observed from talking to victims and and being part of of, uh, recovery groups is understanding that um, a run-in with a covert narcissist is often a lot more damaging over the long run than a a run-in with an overt narcissist that passive aggressiveness and that control and that manipulation and the hold that some people can have on you can be a lot deeper and more mysterious than oh my boss was a jerk or oh you know somebody in my upbringing was a real difficult person all right so that's kind of a definition now i had mentioned at the outset that there are three different kind of groups of people that might approach the subject and I talked about the biblical worldview and I talked about psychologists and the psychological community the third group of people that approaches this and I would group myself in this at this point is victims or survivors um, those two words mean the same thing but just have different energy associated with them a survivor of a narcissistic uh, relationship or narcissistic abuse And there's a whole bunch of people, and it seems to be on the rise right now, kind of seems like a trend, that are realizing, hey, um, my life was built around a narcissist, whether that's a narcissistic spouse or narcissistic parent, narcissistic boss, narcissistic brother or whatever. And um, I've always thought something was wrong about me. I always thought something was off. I always had difficulties in other parts of relationships always felt like that particular relationship I could never get it right and one day I stumbled across this word narcissism 
and I realized, oh, that's what's going on. This person is a narcissist. That's why I can never get it right. That's why um, whenever I'm around them, things go crazy. That's why um, there's such deep, you know, scars on my soul. That's why um, I was treated like an object and I couldn't understand why I was just dumped like uh, a used coffee cup after I, after they were done with me. So when survivors of narcissists approach this, they have kind of a different perspective because they've lived it. Um, they have a lot more personal passion that they bring to it. Um, and it's going to be more animated. And when a psychologist approaches it, it's very clinical. It's very, you know, cut and dry. We're talking about a definition. When a survivor talks about it, it's like, that was my spouse or that was my dad, or that was that boss that um, ruined 10 years of my life, you know, so there's a different energy associated with it. Now, when we understand those two groups, the psychologists and the victims, we understand why there's some confusion about some of the definitions, because you have victims and survivors writing a lot of books and blogs and using psychology and then you have the psychologists that are writing the material but have a slightly different perspective than the victims and so this is a great time to talk about some of the cautions uh, as we approach the subject of narcissism and as you might the lights might be coming on for you as you realize oh this person's a narcissist okay so there's a few cautions that that are helpful to mention at this point first of all narcissism is a spectrum and so just about everybody just about all healthy people have a certain sense of like, oh yeah, I'm special. I'm a good person. You know, um, there's a statistic that says something like, something like 80% of people think that they're an above average driver. Well, you know, that's not true. 80% <laughs> of people can't be above average. So some people have an inflated image of their driving abilities or who they are as persons or their status, whatever. Um, so just because somebody is a little bit full of themselves, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're narcissistic. Narcissism is being full of yourself, but also uh, having this inability to connect with others and treating other people like objects and this deep seated insecurity at the center of yourself. That's really the, the core uh, of what a narcissist is. It's somebody that's very, very insecure and they've learned to medicate this insecurity by um, by using people. But people can have this to a certain degree. And so somebody might, you know, if you take it, there's a whole bunch of tests online. You can take tests um, to see whether you're narcissistic or you can take them, like if you're trying to figure out if a person in your life is narcissistic, you can think through them and answer the questions and say, oh, this person, I'm maybe a, a 4 out of 10 on the narcissist scale. Okay, that might be something interesting to keep my eye on. And somebody else in my life might be a 9 out of 10. Okay, well, that's interesting. You know, you can always take three or four tests from different websites and kind of get an idea of, of whether a person's a narcissist or not. But you'll notice that people are on a spectrum. So Nar John, uh, Donald Trump is kind of a 10 out of 10. Like, that's pretty extreme. It's 
it's no doubt that if you were in a relationship with Trump, um, it would be difficult, you know, um, he's very fragile, which means you'd have to think long and hard about what you're going to say to him before you say it. If you need to be the one to tell him that one of his ideas didn't work out or he lost some money, you're going to be up all night trying to think through how to say that without him blowing up in your face. Um, and if you have something exciting to tell him, you know, you know that you're going to be rewarded for that. Anyways, you're going to tend to, like, it's going to start to dominate your life thinking about him. And then, you know, he will sometimes treat you. Anyways, uh, where was I going with that? That's an extreme case of narcissism. You can have lesser case of narcissism where the person, yes, they have some insecurities, but they medicate their insecurities through different ways. And they're not as extreme, you know, so... Um, it can be tempting once you understand this definition and you really see it in black and white to start calling everybody a narcissist and it'll be or calling a lot of people a narcissist um, and we just want to understand that yes a lot of people are going to have some of these tendencies not everybody is a 10 out of 10 on the narcissist scale the other thing that's important to notice I don't know if it's a caution or just something to notice is that psychologists um, there's psychologists and there's psychotherapists. Psychotherapists you know, just want to walk with you and talk and and figure out your story and help you with your problems. Psychologists are more focused on treatment and they want to diagnose drugs or they want to diagnose a treatment plan. And the psychologists are going to try and find a definition for you. What is the word that defines your problem? You came in here with a problem. What is that problem? And... So there's something called the DSM-5, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, um, 5th edition, which is kind of the Bible of psychology right now. This is where all the definitions are. And the DSM-5 is very important for insurance purposes because if you get diagnosed with a condition that's listed in the DSM-5, then you could potentially get insur have an insurance claim. So if you have schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or clinical depression then you could um, go on sick leave and uh, you could be compensated for that so that's that's what a psychologist does uh, that's a lot of what they do is diagnosing somebody diagnose um, prescribing a treatment plan whether that's drugs or whether that's going to further counseling or a specific type of counseling um, and doing insurance claims, making sure that it's paid for. So um, something that's happened to both my wife and I, uh, and something that might happen to you, is you do your research on your own, and you say, this psychological term and that psychological term explains my issues and my problems. And you come to a psychologist, and they listen to you for a while, and you say, and they say, oh no, that's wrong. You don't have this. That person isn't that. Uh, this definition does not apply to them. And then they feel like their job is done. Whereas you're feeling like, hey, those words were really helpful for me as I'm trying to walk my journey. Whether or not they're precisely how they're laid out in the DSM-5, you know, you, you just took something from me. I had a definition when I came in here. Now I don't have anything. So a psychologist is looking for you know, are you a 10 out of 10 on the narcissist scale? Okay, if you meet these criteria, then you're a narcissist. If 
this person in your life doesn't meet these criteria, they're not a 10 out of 10. Okay, this person isn't a narcissist. You need to just drop that. You need to not call them a narcissist. Okay, have a good day. And then they'll kind of, you know, depending on the person, they might just kind of drop you at that point. So I just kind of want to make you aware that a psychologist is focused on definitions. And um, there can be a bit of a tension between survivors and psychologists because a survivor says, look, I don't really care what you call this person. They're hurt. They're hurt. They've been hurtful to me. I see narcissistic tendencies. Can we talk about that? Can we talk about the fact that I've been used as an object? Can we talk about the fact that, um, that this person, it's all about them. It's always all about them. And can we talk about the fact that I'm trying to rediscover what love is after, um, building my whole life around a narcissistic view of love where it's all about the other person. It's all about them. And so, yeah, my my cautions so far are just to say people are on a spectrum. Be, be wary of calling a lot of people a narcissist. And just understand that a psychologist is going to push back sometimes when you come into a, an office and say, I have this relationship with a narcissist. They might say, whoa, hold on a second. I don't think this person is a narcissist. And what they're meaning is they're not a 10 out of 10. They wouldn't get insurance coverage to do a treatment plan. But it might be true that they have significant narcissistic tendencies and it might be true that those are the things that are hurting you that, and that's why you came to counseling. The third caution is just to say, look, just because somebody is a narcissist, it doesn't mean they're not a person. There's still a person in there. There's still a child that is hurting. There's still a real human soul. And especially if they're younger and especially if they're not kind of a 10 out of a 10, there's still hope for this person. And we need to care for them. We need to understand that this person is made in the image of God. They're valuable as a person. And um, we need to hold out hope for them. And not just treat them like a label. Um, and not just treat them as inferior because of, you know, their narcissistic tendencies. All right, with that being said, let's look at some of the typical behaviors of narcissists. And this might become more clear as we talk, as I talk about how a narcissist behaves, I'll give you a better idea of um, of whether you might have a narcissist in your life, and uh, this might kind of ring some bells. So as I mentioned, um, narcissists have this deep insecurity in them, and they tend to treat people like objects, and so they'll put people through this cycle of idealizing the person, where a person comes into their life and they they recruit them and they say you're the most amazing person in the world you're wonderful it's i'm so glad that you're part of this team or i'm so glad that you're my friend you know they they greet them with a big handshake their, their eyes are wide open their their eyebrows are raised they have a smile they're projecting love and, and acceptance and and their body motions are very large and embracing and the person feels like, wow, this is a great person. This is a great, good friend. This is somebody I want on my team or I want to be part of their team. And then, um, as long as you are serving the narcissist, things are going well and, um, they keep building you up. But then at a certain point, it's like the verse Paul said, uh, Paul in the Bible was speaking about false teachers and he says, 
they wish to shut you out so that they will so that you will seek after them since so this is how bad teachers are they prop you up and then they say oh well you can't you know they, they push you at arm's length and force you to go running after them this is what a narcissist does after a certain point they start to devalue people and they start to insult them and they start to tear them down they start to um to just pick away at people and pick away at their sense of worth, start critiquing them, start insulting them, start making jokes uh, that are cutting and biting so and keeping people off balance and, and confused and, and slowly their status kind of starts to go down. And especially if they have any sort of insecurity in themselves, as most people have some sense of insecurity, all those insecurities will start to come to the surface and this people will start to this person will start to feel confused and kind of floating in a cloud and kind of questioning themselves a lot and kind of what's going on. I thought we were I thought I was doing well, I thought I was serving you well. And what this will do is it will put that person into hyperdrive to try and figure out what it was that um how can I get back in the good graces of the narcissist? How can I improve? How can I please him? How can I make him feel good so that he will make me feel special again? And so then that person who is starting to be devalued will start to work harder to please the narcissist. He, will, he or she will start to work harder to improve their performance and improve their looks and improve, you know, what whatever it is that, you know, their sexual output or whatever whatever it is that makes the narcissist happy and when the narcissist starts getting what he wants from the person then they idealize them again say oh you're so wonderful you're such a beautiful person you're i'm so glad that you're in my life and la say all those things that make the person feel wonderful and they go up and down up and down as they are serving the narcissist the narcissist has a way of of using people in that way and playing with their emotions and playing with them with their core sense of identity and value as a human being so that they can get what they want out of the person and out of the relationship until the narcissist gets to a point where they realize actually you're not serving me anymore actually i'm not getting what i want out of you and at that point um and this is this is the most devastating thing that happens in a lot of people's lives a narcissist will just dump you and we'll just say, actually, I'm done. I'm done with this relationship. I found somebody else. I'm moving on. And after a year, 10 years, 20 years of doing this dance and going up and down, up and down, uh, being idealized and devalued, idealized and, and devalued and sleepless nights and and obsessing about the narcissist and, and trying to figure out how to please them and doing all these things, all of a sudden you find yourself out on the street and the narcissist says, I don't care. I've never cared for you. You're nothing to me. And truly, they move on. Because you never were anything to them. You you were always just there to serve their needs. You were always just there. Uh, because narcissists don't... Um, they don't emotionally connect. They're incapable of it because something was missed in their early childhood. You know, if you look at um, a paper cup and you look at a baby, for most people, there's a difference. You would look at the paper cup and say, well, that's useful to me, 
But when I'm done with it, I'll throw it in the garbage or I'll throw it in the fire or whatever. Like it's, it's, it might be really important right now. If I'm thirsty, I'm really excited about having a cup of coffee or a cup of water. But when I'm done with it, it has zero, like if you ask me in a day where that paper cup went, I won't even remember because it wasn't significant what happened to it when I got rid of it. Once I, I remember buying the coffee, but I don't remember what I did when, when I was done with it. I'm sure I threw it in the garbage somewhere. Um, but the baby, you know, you, it's significant. And whether that child or that human person is serving me or not, that person is still significant. So for most healthy people, a breakup is very hurtful. It's very painful, even if you're the one initiating, even if you feel like it's in your best interest to break this relationship off. It still hurts you to think, oh, but this is, I'm hurting that person. I'm leaving them. Um, they're going to be hurt. It's going to be hard for them. Uh, I hate to do this, but you know, this is going to be the best thing for both of us, blah, blah, blah. That's how a normal person would be to break off a relationship. It's hurtful. It's hard. It's, it's, um, it's sad. It, it's something you remember for a long time. For a narcissist, it's like throwing out a paper cup. It's not a big deal because that person only ever existed to serve me. When they're not serving me anymore, you know, you never were all that important to me. And so this is where, um, this is why there's a lot of groups. There's hashtags, hashtag survivor of narcissistic abuse. Um, there's, you know, places on Twitter, there's places on Facebook, there's places on Instagram, there's places on the internet, there's books, there's communities that you can find of survivors of narcissists because when either you wake up and you realize you're in this cycle of being idealized, devalued, idealized, devalued so that you're building your whole life around trying to please the narcissist so that they won't reject you. That rejection is always in the back of your mind. You know it can happen because you've seen it happen to other people and that was meant as a warning for you. Sometimes it's done in front of you. Look, I can reject them, I'll reject you. Um, and that is meant to drive you crazy and turbocharge you and force you to perform. Um, and either you wake up to that and make the decision, the very, 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 very difficult decision to leave the narcissist and to get out of that crazy cycle. And then often the narcissist will go into attack mode and try and take you out, um, depending on what kind of person they are. Or else the narcissist rejects you and leaves you on the curb and then you're trying to pick up the pieces of your life. This is These are the things that create survivors of narcissistic abuse. And it's a very, very painful place to be. And it it's something where um, survivors feel like only a survivor of a narcissist can really understand what I'm going through. Because when you say, oh, I was dumped, other people that were dumped also might say oh I understand what that is but if you weren't dumped by a narcissist you don't know what that is you don't know what it is to build your whole life around somebody just to find out on a certain day that it was all a lie on their on their behalf uh, if you weren't in the cycle of in the crazy cycle of um, being caught in the orbit of a narcissist you might say oh yeah well my my family has issues too everybody's family has to have issues yeah but that's different than a narcissistic family. A narcissistic family has its own type of crazy. If you were in a narcissistic workplace, 
Somebody else might say, oh yeah, I've been in some bad workplaces too. But that's different than a narcissistic workplace. That's different than the toxicity that surrounds, you know, a workplace that is built and centered around a narcissistic uh, person at the center of it. So what are some of the other tactics of narcissists? What's really interesting with narcissists is that it's not like they all go to school. But when you start reading books on narcissism, they all follow such a predictable pattern. Um, it's kind of funny in a way because they all think that they're so smart and, and funny and um, creative and, and nobody is amazing as nobody is as amazing as I am. I'm one of a kind and all this sort of stuff. But when you start reading books on narcissism, you realize they're all the same. They are all just completely identical and so predictable. So one of the things that happens is um, they'll take a family or a relationship or a workplace and organize it around, there's always a golden child. There's always somebody that's at the top of the hierarchy that is pleasing the narcissist today. And that person might be, um, yeah, might be one of the children or employees or, or the spouse or whatever. Um and the golden child can do no wrong. And they're always held up as, this is the perfect person. This is, other people are compared to them. Why can't you be like Johnny? Johnny is always good. Johnny always comes in on time. Johnny always, look at look at his good work ethic. Look at all the good things he does. Look at how beautiful she is. Um, if somebody's married, they might compare their wife to their mother or compare their wife to an employee at work or compare their wife to one of their friend's spouses and say, this other person is amazing. This other person is beautiful. This other person is um, always doing this for their spouse. Um, and so that does two things. For one thing, it rewards that person. Right now, I'm getting what I want from this person. And number two, that motivates everybody else to say, okay, that's what I need to try and be. I need to try and be like that. And then I can have this love and affirmation from from the narcissist that I want or like it might be love aff- affirmation or it might be the promotion it might be money depending on the type of relationship the narcissist also always has scapegoats and there's always somebody at the bottom and they're the person that can do no right and they're blamed for everything and they're anything that goes wrong the narcissists make a lot of mistakes but they never own their mistakes they always blame them on somebody else and so the narcissist will do a project and they'll set it up so that somebody else is in charge of the project even though it's the narcissist's idea so if the idea succeeds the narcissist takes the credit and says that was my idea it was wonderful it was great and they kind of forget that somebody else did most of the work for it if the idea fails then it was the responsibility of the person that was in charge of it and it was oh so and so was in charge they're a terrible person you know they slacked off they weren't so great And the narcissist moves on, and that person then becomes the scapegoat. So a narcissist will leave this trail of wrecked people behind them. All their mistakes will be blamed on somebody else. And and a narcissist is going to have a cloud of people around them, like a really overt, big narcissist will tend to have a, a crowd of people around them. And they'll kind of drop people off um, as scapegoats with their failed ideas. And uh, as people no longer are useful to them, they'll just narcissistically reject them and leave them on the curb and say, 
you know, you always were a problem person and now you're just done. So at the top, you have the golden child. At the bottom, you have the scapegoat. And in between, you have all the crazy people that are fighting and vying for the attention and trying to, to climb up the ladder. So these are the toxic workplaces that you've grown up in or that you you have worked at and been happy to get out of that job. These are the toxic families that maybe you're finding distance from as an adult. Um, these are... Um, perhaps the toxic marriage that um, that you might find yourself in or or that you were in. There's a couple tactics that are really predictable of narcissists. Narcissists have um, they have such a crushing need to be liked and they have such a crushing need to feed that deep insecurity in themselves that they are desperate for attention. And there's a book called Fuel by H.G. Tudor. And H.G. Uh, Tudor is an interesting author. Uh, I'm not sure if I recommend him or not. It's a pen name of somebody that knows that they're a narcissist. Uh, they're, um, they're an overt narcissist. And they're a terrible person, um, if I'm to take his writings seriously. And he doesn't really like who he is, but he's kind of embraced it. And he writes books about who he is and what he does to people. Um, and it's... Hey, buddy. Yeah, you're a good boy. Buddy just came over to say hi. If you need a... Didn't you go outside, buddy? All right, I'm going to pause this for a second. Buddy is my dog, by the way. So H.G. Tudor has a book called Fuel, and he talks about how, like you might ask, the narcissist is doing so much craziness and so much energy, and like, what do they actually want? What is it that they need? And uh, Tudor says, we want fuel. We need fuel. And he spends a whole book explaining what fuel is to him, and in recovery circles, fuel has become kind of this this term that expresses what it what it it, it expresses part of what it is to be in a relationship with a narcissist. It's basically attention, but it can be strong positive or strong negative attention. Either way, the narcissist is happy. The thing that narcissists can't handle is not having attention. They can't handle no drama. They can't handle silence. They can't handle a normal day. If it's a normal day, if there's no drama, if the sun is shining, then what happens is the narcissist starts to, um, their demons start to surface. That insecurity starts to surface. That, that deep sense of like, I'm worthless as a human being. That's what starts to surface. And Tudor says it's it's as though there's this terrible monster deep down inside and I have to build this cage around this monster because if this monster ever gets out and can really take over my life it will just destroy me I can I can't handle it and so he needs fuel and he needs fuel to to build this cage and he said like in the same way that like everybody needs praise and affirmation and and recognition like, it would be hard to live your whole life and have nobody in the world notice you and nobody in the world 
say that you're a nice person and, and you did something useful, you know. But whereas, like, um, Tom, not Tom Sawyer, who wrote Tom Sawyer? Who wrote Tom Sawyer? Mark Twain. Mark Twain said, I can go, I think he said, I can go six months on one good compliment. Um, you know, that's fairly accurate. You know, normal, healthy people, if somebody takes the time to, you know, really say, hey, I appreciate you, appreciate what you do, you know, you're such a kind person, and, and I love you so much, and, you know, a normal person that that get, that affirms their, their sense of self-worth for, for quite a while, maybe it's months, maybe it's years, maybe it's days, but you feel good, and, and not just that you feel good, but you feel like you can go on with your life, and most normal people have a normal amount of a need to be affirmed and this normal amount of need leads them to do things such as be kind to others, such as work hard at work, such as invest in their kids, such as invest in key relationships, so that they get this steady flow of people saying I love you, people saying thanks a lot, people demonstrating through their their body language that they are happy that you showed up and they're happy that you're around. A narcissist, because they have such deep insecurity, and again, as Tudor said, it's like this this beast inside that is always hungry and threatens to take over their whole internal world, they need that affirmation, they need that praise all the time, every day. They need a hit, like every hour, more than that. He said even almost every minute, he needs affirmation, he needs praise, he needs somebody to say that he's wonderful, he needs somebody to say that they love him, or to say that they hate him. And this is the strange thing about it, is that, um, like he gives the example of driving down the road in his fancy car, and and if he cuts somebody off and they honk at him, and they're mad at him, that gives him fuel too, because it's like, ha ha ha, you know, look at me, I have my fancy car, I cut you off, you got mad at me, but there's nothing you can do. Now I'm under your skin all day. Now you're bugged about me all day. And that just makes the narcissist happy. That just affirms his sense of, oh yeah, I'm a special person. Look at me. Um, I'm not nobody. I'm not insignificant. Look at me. You know, um, I have a fancy car and I cut somebody off in traffic. And it's petty, but it's the way that a narcissist works. They need fuel. Either people telling them that they love them, that they're amazing, that they're beautiful, that they're handsome, that they're creative, that they're wonderful that's positive affirmation, that's positive fuel, or negative fuel as far as the person saying, I hate you, you drive me nuts, I can't stand you, I'm always thinking about you. You're, um, the thing that a narcissist can't stand is when the person just says, all right, well, I'm over you. Um, you weren't, you're not all that significant. I've moved on, doing other things with my life. That's what the narcissist really can't stand because they want to believe that they are God, basically. So that is fuel. Fuel is a really important concept for victims to understand what was going on in their reality or what perhaps is still going on in their reality as they're building their lives around a narcissist. Fuel is um, is not really a psychological term. This is more of a survivor term. So just that's just kind of helpful as we think about this. If you go to your psychologist and talk about fuel, they might not necessarily know what you're talking about. 
but in survivor circles they'll they'll have a better understanding what you mean another tendency of narcissism is pathological lying so normal people lie all the time right either you slightly modify the truth to protect yourself or protect others and you only tell you know the public story or you only tell what this person wants to hear or sometimes you specifically think to yourself the truth is difficult or damaging so i'm going to i'm going to tell a lie i'm going to say something that's not true and normal people lie um sometimes when they feel like it's necessary a pathological liar lies all the time and they lie to themselves and they lie as a part of creating their own reality and narcissists like the 10 out of 10 narcissist the person who is a very strong narcissist will lie all the time to the point where they don't know what the truth is anymore and people in their orbit don't know what the truth is anymore they don't remember who actually did that project they think it was the scapegoat that is responsible for that project they don't remember the the real story about what happened on july 17th 1995 you know that everybody just remembers the narcissist version of the story and the narcissist will continually um when difficult things happen that seem to reflect poorly on them they'll obsess on them they'll think through them though they'll, they'll have this chaotic process in their mind until they reorganize things in a way where they are either the victim or they are the victor either everybody conspired against me and i couldn't help it you know everybody ganged up on me and that's why this happened or else this was a victory this was a win in some way and i'm the one that that did the winning it's it's because of me in one way or the other the narcissist is always going to reconstruct reality in a way that it's all about them it's always all about them and so if you're in the orbit of a narcissist life is really confusing because the truth is that it's not all about the narcissist the truth is that you know there's a lot of people that might have been involved in the project the truth is that maybe the narcissist isn't the best worker maybe the narcissist isn't the smartest person maybe the maybe it, the narcissist isn't even all that important sometimes um but the narcissist will change the story and what's remarkable is the narcissist gets really really good at it like the brain is a fantastic machine and somehow the the narcissist's brain has figured out that it is very important to always be the center of the story and the story can change in the blink of an eye in a conversation where you say this is what happened or or you relay some news and the narcissist bounces that news back and already the news has changed and now it's all about the narcissist it it's if you haven't experienced it you don't know what i'm talking about if you have experienced it the lights are coming on right now and you're realizing oh that's what's going on so pathological liars it's not that they it's not that they're walking along in truth and coherence and then they decide to make a lie it's that the whole life their whole mentality their whole internal world is continually untrue 
and it's continually shifting and it's continually everything relating back to the narcissist and things are either amazing or they're terrible and people are either wonderful or they're terrible, evil, stupid people. And again, they, you think, oh, that kind of sounds like Donald Trump. Yeah, exactly. Um, and truth becomes, you know, kind of a casualty of war in, in the, the crazy-making mind of the narcissist. So this can be very, very, very difficult for people trying to have a relationship with a narcissist, especially if peop- if the people in the relationship have their own issues. Everybody has their own issues. If they're a little bit insecure, if they're a little bit, I don't know, um, if they're younger or they're inferior in some way, less smart, less qualified than the narcissist. Narcissists tend to surround themselves with people that are in some way weaker than themselves so that they don't feel threatened. Um, and so if somebody is looking to the narcissist for their gauge of what reality is, they're going to be very, very, very confused. And this is where the term gaslighting comes in because the, the narcissist will, because these are often very clever people, um, they're not self-aware, but parts of their mind are working overtime to create this world. Um, it can become intentional. So they're not just confusing people because they are confused, but they are specifically trying to undermine the minds and the sense of reality and even the sanity of the people in their lives. Because if they can knock the other people off balance, then they can serve their narcissistic needs and they can be part of this orbit and they can they can use them. So the the lesser of the two evils, perhaps perhaps lesser, I'm not sure if that's the right way to say it, but just jabs and jokes and put-downs and demeaning comments can come in where, you know, you're having fun together, you're both relaxed, and you're both seeming to have a good day, and all of a sudden the narcissist comes up with, oh, you look so stupid in that hat, or or something like that that's out of the blue and, like, what's wrong with my hat? You know, I wasn't even thinking about myself. I wasn't thinking about my appearance. All of a sudden you comment on my hat and you come back with, well, what's wrong with my hat? You don't like it? And the narcissist says, oh, I was just joking. And then the person is caught off guard. They're unbalanced. They're not sure. You know, like a healthy person would would say something like, you know, I think think your red hat looks a lot nicer than your green hat. Uh, it really brings out your eyes or <laughs> your eyes <laughs> uh, or it, it you know it complements your dress or whatever like that's what a normal person would do they're, they're trying to build the person up so they say you know you should wear this not that and if if something doesn't look good they might say you know like I'm not sure that that dress really complements your figure or you know whatever like they'll find a, a way to do it a narcissist will will pick at something but then when you try and fix it, you're like, oh, okay, this is a problem with me. This is a problem with my behavior. This is a problem with my performance. This is a problem with with something that I'm doing. How can I change it? And then they back off and they won't give you any specific guidance. And you're like, well, I thought, like, don't you want me to change? And they're like, oh, I'm just joking. And it, it makes the person unbalanced, makes them confused, like, what's going on? Don't you want me to perform better? Don't you want me to look better? Don't you want me? No. They want you to feel inferior. That was the point of the 
joke, quote unquote joke. That was the point of the jab. That was the point of the insult. Because they felt like you were too secure. They felt like you were getting too healthy. They felt like they like you were getting too strong. And somewhere inside, there was a warning bell that said, oh, uh-oh, we can't have strong people around us. Give her a jab. And so he came up with some sort of a jab to put you down. That's what was going on. And it's often not true. And it creates this crazy-making reality of what is true anymore. Am I a good person? Am I a beautiful person? Am I a good worker? Like, what is true? What is solid under my feet? I don't even know anymore. And this can become even more explicit. There was a screenplay written, I think, in the nine, in the black and white era. I'm not exactly sure of the year, but called Gaslight where a husband was a narcissist and he was specifically trying to break down the mind of his wife and he would specifically change things. He would take something she had put in one place and put it somewhere else and he would say things to her like, oh, we did this yesterday. And she'd be like, that's not what we did yesterday. And he said, yes, that is what we did yesterday. Like, I can't believe you forgot that. And he would specifically do things to try and make her doubt her own reality and um, it's a really extreme case but narcissists will do this in perhaps a lesser degree or perhaps to that degree because again unbalanced people weak people will serve a narcissist because they can't get out they end up caught in the orbit of a narcissist and they end up caught in this cycle of idealization and devaluing and working hard for the narcissist and, and all these things So gaslighting is um, specifically trying to mess with the mind of the other person by lies and by changing the narrative. And this is what narcissists will do. They will will try and change. They'll try and make people go crazy, literally. And you might say, well, is this intentional? Is this not intentional? It's, It's hard to know. Sometimes it's hard to know. But I think that the mind is a complex machine and... Um, I think in a previous podcast on counseling, I talked about parts therapy, and it seems to me like there are, there can be, it's like there's little men or little women inside your mind that sometimes they don't talk to each other, but they're each on their own mission. And there certainly seems to be a part in the mind of the narcissist that is trying to break other people down that is trying to make them small and weak and make them into something that the narcissist can use and that the narcissist can control. And um, that part of the mind does not care at all about the person as themselves. They only care about the person as an object to serve the needs of the narcissist, giving them fuel and uh, propelling them forward in the projects that they have as narcissists to try and prop up their own ego and prop up their own wealth and prop up their own success as a person. All right, with that being said, let's move on to a few common questions and then we'll wrap up this first podcast on narcissism. We'll probably have a lot more later on, maybe have some guests on to talk about it. Um, It's really important as... um, yeah, it's, it's a really important topic for anybody, especially if you're a survivor of a narcissist. And right now, everybody is basically experiencing narcissistic abuse through Donald Trump. Uh, that, is my, that is my unbiased opinion. <laughs> um, 
So the first question might be, is narcissism a bad thing? Is it always a bad thing? And um, you might be surprised as I say, no, narcissism is not always a bad thing. It depends what you want to happen. And this is something that that I've learned to say is people ask me for advice or ask me, you know, should I say this or should I say that? Um, as I've been more vocal on Facebook, more people have kind of reached out to me via private message and kind of asked me advice on various things. And the thing I tend to say is, what do you want to happen? Like, you could do this or you could do that. You know, what, what do you want to happen? Um, narcissists can be great at producing a certain kind of result. So a movie that, uh, a TV series that we used to like to watch is Hell's Kitchen. And at a certain point, I realized David Ramsey's a narcissist. Now, he's, he's not a 10 out of 10 because you do see flashes of compassion, real human, genuine compassion out of him. And he really does care for other people. Whereas a true narcissist really would not care about other people. But the way that he sets up his show, he brings a bunch of people on, he builds them up, and then he tears them down, and he forces people to work for his affection, he forces people to work for his, his, um, his praise, and then he rewards people at the end, and then when they win, then they're the golden children, and they're you know, perfect, and can do no wrong, and then everybody else is compared to them, and that, that's very narcissistic. And I'm sure that there's people that leave that show that have psychological problems that go for years, maybe decades, like some people might be ruined for life uh, because of how they were treated. But he gets results. He gets results. He gets, you know, world-renowned chefs. He creates a chain of restaurants. He gets, you know, for himself, he becomes a world-famous chef. You know, he, he gets results. So is it always a bad thing? Well, it gets results, but at the expense of people. And I'm not sure, you know, like what's the cost in his personal life? Is he only a narcissist at work and then he's able to leave that at work and then at home he's a normal person? I'm not sure. I don't know enough about his life. But in the workplace, there can be a utility for it. There can be a usefulness for it. Um, that extreme performance driven. Most of the highest performers in the world are probably narcissists or are on the narcissistic spe spectrum because narcissism you know, and probably most of the main athletes would similarly be narcissists because uh, if you're going to be at the very top, you're going to have to want to sacrifice literally everything to get there. And the only way you're going to sacrifice literally everything is if you're a little bit crazy inside um, and you really, you know, you're willing to sacrifice everything, even your own happiness, to have that sense of affirmation. And that kind of describes what a narcissist is. So it's not always bad in the sense that if you really want results, especially if you want short-term performance, measurable results, such as a company that's making a lot of money, such as a sports team that wins the cup, um, a narcissist might be the one to get the job done. It tends to be bad for relationships, obviously, interpersonal relationships, also the longevity of a company, because the longevity of a company is usually based on relationships, because 
you want to have like that's how you get the job done over the long run is you have good relationships with good people that know how to do their job you do you know you do need a harshness in there but you you also need people to trust each other enough to work together and a narcissist creates an environment of mistrust and competition and a real cutthroat workplace where everybody is trying to um to sabotage everyone else to move one step up the ladder that's kind of how a narcissist creates narcissists create toxic workplaces literally like if if you find it a toxic workplace there's a narcissist in there somewhere um so short-term results yes performance driven results yes but they're going to tend to have long-term problems some questions to clarify um I've heard people ask the question, are narcissists the same as people on the autism spectrum? And that question kind of confused me. But I think the reason people wonder that is because people on the autism spectrum, you know, you can have a high-performing autistic person. The most famous one right now in TV is um, the guy from Big Bang. Uh, I forget what his name is. He's kind of the central character on Big Bang, and he's a smart guy, PhD, university professor, um, who is on the autism spectrum. He has Asperger's syndrome. So he doesn't relate to other people emotionally. He's very intellectually focused and he's very, very focused on himself and on his, um, and on his ambitions. So people might say, well, is this the same thing? Are, is Asperger's syndrome or people on the spectrum the same as narcissism and often man i can't think of his name often that character from the big bang theory is in memes and in in discussion groups he's kind of used as the poster child of narcissism i think that asperger's syndrome is different than narcissism in the sense that somebody with a high functioning autistic person has difficulty um, connecting with other people because that part of, however that works, and that's not my field, that's not my specialty, but that part of their mind and their personality just wasn't able to develop. So they're a little bit clueless when it comes to interpersonal relationships. They're not trying to screw you over. They just don't understand how to really love you they don't they're not meaning to treat people like objects but they don't fully comprehend that other people are selves in the same way that they are so they might get to the same result as a narcissist but a narcissist is different in the sense that they understand that the other person is a self they just don't care they understand that they're using somebody else but as this author hg tutor he just doesn't care. He knows he's treating women like objects. He knows he's using employees like objects, but he doesn't care. He knows he's a terrible person for doing this, but he doesn't care. Whereas somebody with Asperger's syndrome, they might do these things, they might only be focused on performance and tasks. They might treat people like objects, but they're not meaning to in the same sense. That That's my basic answer to that question. Um, perhaps there's you know, a psychologist that could give a better answer to that. But in brief, I don't think that Asperger's syndrome is the same thing as um, 
as narcissism, although it might get to a similar result. And I also kind of think that um, perhaps something that has uh, contributed to this idea is the fact that the actor that plays the narcissist, the, the, man, what is his name? The guy in, in Big Bang Theory. Um, he him, he's an actor, and he himself does not have Asperger's Syndrome. And so I wonder if that might contribute a little bit. Like, he's trying to act it, but he's he doesn't have the condition himself. So he's not clueless, and so that there's a sense of cruelty that might come out in how he acts it out. Uh, that's just kind of my guess. Whereas, right, the TV personality is Sheldon Cooper. That's what I'm trying to say. Whereas a movie that really opened my eyes to Asperger's Syndrome was uh, Temple Grandin, a movie about a genuine woman with Asperger's Syndrome who was a high-functioning um, autistic person who uh, revolutionized the world of the cattle industry and slaughterhouses and uh, earned, I think she got a PhD in animal husbandry or something. And, and that is very well acted. You can tell that this person... Um, like the way that she perceives the world is very, um, very different than the way that other people perceive the world. Whereas Sheldon Cooper, you kind of get the idea that he understands the world. He just doesn't care about people the same way. So it seems to me that Sheldon Cooper, although he's trying to display somebody with Asperger's syndrome, it comes across a little bit more like a narcissist. And that might just be to make the show funny or relatable. It might be you know, he's not as good of an actor, uh, Temple Grandin. And then Temple Grandin had um, a TED Talk. Um, and that as well was really interesting just to see how she behaved on stage, her posture, her awkwardness, but then her brilliance and how that comes out. So anyways, just to say, I don't think Asperger's syndrome is the same as narcissism for those reasons. Can a narcissist change? So you'll have different answers depending on who you ask. The psychological community would tend to say that there is no evidence that narcissists change. Um, they've done studies. They have tried treatments. It doesn't, they don't change. And this is not because people can't think of good ways to help narcissists change. It's not because talk therapy couldn't work. It's just that the narcissists themselves tend to not want to change. They tend to have a high dropout rate. And over time, they just, they don't change. They don't see the problem as themselves. Again, we talked about always being the victim, having a confused internal world, pathologically lying, turning every story into a narrative either of their triumphs or of their victimhood. You get to this place where you just feel like, I'm not the problem. Everybody else is the problem. It was my wife that was the problem. It was my kids that were the problem. It was my employees that were the problem. It was my boss that was the problem. It was everybody else was the problem. I'm not the problem. Everybody else needs to go to therapy, not me. So the short answer is there is very little evidence that narcissists will change. Now, that being said, is it helpful to tell somebody that you'll never change. Um, again, people are on a spectrum, and somebody that's, you know, 
if they realize, if, if somebody is able, is listening to this and thinking, wow, I might be narcissistic, likely you're not a 10 out of 10 because a 10 out of 10 wouldn't have that sense of self-awareness. If you're self-aware enough to say, wow, maybe I'm a 5 out of 10 and that's too close, or maybe I'm a 6 out of 10, goodness, I really have something to work on. Like I'm, I should take, I should take stock, you know, certainly something like that can change. And especially if somebody is in their teens or in their 20s, even in their 30s, they're going through some kind of a major life upheaval or um, they want to be better as a human being, certainly they can change. And I think that the way that that person can change is not just to focus on their behaviors and try not to be so mean, try not to use people like objects. I think the, the thing that they need to do is look at where things went wrong and find some way to find security in the center of who they are. And the way that um, that I have seen that happen is, um, and, and this was what works for me, it's not necessarily going to be the solution for you, but finding that security in the Christian faith and understanding that um, I am... I might be a sinner, I might be dirty, I might be... Like, there is dirt, there is darkness that lurks inside of me. But my heavenly father loves me in spite of that. My earthly father might have rejected me. He might have been a narcissist, who knows. I might have lived under this fear of being rejected if people knew who I was inside. But God sees me for who I truly am. He loves me. And when we can truly embrace that, I had a sermon I preached back in 2007 when this really became clear to me you know it's normal for as i mentioned at the beginning people in their teens and early 20s to kind of be narcissistic it's at that age it's often kind of part of the development process and so i can kind of look back at that and be like yeah i was probably kind of a six out of ten at that point and i definitely could have kept going on that track to become more narcissistic, but instead, at a certain point, um, what really became true to me was, as it says in Romans 8, God has not given us a spirit of fear leading to slavery again, but of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And for me, what was really helpful, what, what was life-changing, really, was seeing my Father loves me. My Father loves me. My Heavenly Father loves me unconditionally. And when that sense of love can really penetrate the central story of your the narrative of who you are, I believe that that can start to melt some of the ice that surrounds the heart of the narcissist. Um, and it can start to cause them, if they can start to love themselves and see themselves as a real person, as a lovable person, as a good person, as somebody deserving of love, of real love, not just deserving of sex and attention and praise, but deserving of real love, then they can start to see other people as deserving of real love. And then they can start to have true and sincere relationships. But this is a long, hard process. And it's something that, you know, if you're in a relationship, work, family, marriage, if you're in a relationship with somebody that's 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, and they don't see a problem with what's going on, 
they don't see that you're the problem as far as they're concerned. They don't see any problems in themselves. You might be asking yourself, will this person ever change? I've been working on them for a long time. I try and have these conversations. Now I'm finding about narcissism. I'm trying to propose it to them. And they just say, well, you're the narcissist. And will this person ever change? Um, The honest answer is probably not. The narcissist, if they don't understand that they have a problem, especially if they're beyond the window of their 20s, there's a very low chance that they will change. Um, There's actually evidence that um, if they learn about narcissism, if they learn about these strategies, if they learn about all this stuff, uh, rather than being propelled to change, they might actually be propelled to become a more devious narcissist and more efficient at using people. So that's not necessarily good news. I know that's really bad news for a lot of people that are stuck with a narcissist. But um, it forces the question of, okay, now what? And there are strategies for dealing with a narcissist. In brief, um, you need to treat a narcissist like you treat a child, um, but not like you treat a child like a parent child, but kind of like a teacher child, where you know the child has unreasonable demands, and you need to put limits on those demands. And the child might try and create chaos and drama in the classroom. And you need to find a way to tone down that drama and say, okay, stay in your corner. It's not about you right now. It's about the rest of the kids in the class. It's No, it's not about you right now. No, that's not true that your dog ate your homework. No, that's not true. No, you just stay over there. No, that's... And you need to find ways, and this is very difficult... This is where it puts a lot of the work on people in the narcissist's life. They need to find coping strategies for keeping themselves out of the craziness and for keeping a firm grasp on what is true and what is real. And um, they need to find their emotional health somewhere else because a narcissist will never affirm you. They will never love you. They will never give you what you need. So you need to find those needs elsewhere. There is a way to coexist with a narcissist in the same way that a school teacher can coexist with that problem kid in their classroom. But it can never be close and intimate. It it needs to there needs to be strong rules and boundaries and parameters set on that relationship. And many people end up after trying that and the narcissist will fight and fight and fight and fight against any boundaries, any rules, any attempt to limit their claim to godness their claim to divinity they will the narcissist will fight against that at a certain point people just need to say i'm done and back up and move on with their lives and this is called no contact and you can google that and in survivor circles there's a lot of discussion of no contact because that seems to be the only lasting solution for narcissism so if somebody's only like a 6 or a 7 out of 10 on the narcissist scale. By the way, there is no official narcissist scale. I'm just making that up. There's quizzes and tests. It's a little bit arbitrary. but So so don't go Googling the narcissist scale. But like in general terms, if somebody is a pretty strong narcissist, but they're not all the way, there is still some compassion in there. They're, they do still have some redeeming characteristics. They do still have some good moments well, there's probably a way to coexist with them. There's probably a way to 
keep the boundaries up. Don't share too much personal stuff. Don't get sucked into the drama, but we can coexist. If somebody's like a 9 out of 10, a 10 out of 10, if somebody's just extreme narcissist, if somebody's just a Donald Trump, okay, well, I might buy your products. Like, I might show up at work, but we are not friends. Um, I'm going to do my thing. You're going to do your thing. Or it might get to the point where it's just, I need to get distance from you. Um, I'm going to move and not give you my address. I'm just, we're done. We're done. And that's called no no contact. And um, it makes Christians cringe because we've been told that we need to forgive and love and reconcile and all that stuff. Um, but I've become convinced that no contact at times is the only way to really help survivors move on with their lives. And they deserve to not build their whole lives around a narcissist, a narcissistic abuser. And there's a book called The Christian's Guide to No Contact by uh, Sister Renee P- Patelli that I would recommend to you if um, if this describes you, if you're a Christian and you realize that maybe you have a narcissist in your life. Um, not, that, not that no contact should be your first solution and it might not ever be the solution for you, but it gives you, that book will give you helpful biblical clues to think through um, what it means to have a relationship with a narcissistic person. And just to end on that note, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about wicked people. The Bible has a lot to say about fools. The Bible has a lot to say about the ungodly. The Bible has a lot to say about hypocrites, people that call themselves Christians, but their lives do not demonstrate the love and the other-centeredness of Christ. And the Bible is pretty clear about what we're supposed to do with these people. Don't be yoked together with them. Don't eat with them. Don't be friends with them. Don't be associated with them. Call them out on their sins. Um, separate from them. Make better friends, etc. Because uh, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. So if we as Christians can start to see that there are really people that have chosen a dark path, and you can call them well, there's different types of people that choose a dark path, but one of the types of people that choose a dark path is a narcissist. They're a wicked person. You will not have a good and a godly life so long as you're letting a wicked person into the center of the core of your life and your heart. You need to find distance from that. Um, and there might be a way to find distance and still have a relationship, or it might be, it might be time to talk about... Um, getting some space from that person. All right, so this has been Seeking Health with Josiah Meyer. Seek health, find God, and ministries will find you. We're going to talk more about narcissism in future podcasts. I hope that um, this podcast has been helpful to you. Have a good day. Bye.